Welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast. Jerome Madison here, and today we're talking to Dr. Michael Ashton, Medical Director for the Department of Laboratories at Seattle Children's and also co-founder of PLUGS, Patient-Centered Laboratory Utilization Guidance Service. Dr. Ashton, welcome to the Precision Medicine Podcast. It's good to be here, Jerome. Thanks for inviting me. I heard you speak at the Precision Medicine Institute in New Orleans this year, and you were talking about the need for collaboration of labs, payers, and providers or, or healthcare systems. And at some point during your, your, your conversation, I found myself looking around the room because, you know, I wanted to know who else was going to jump out of their chair and, and shout amen, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, but that was me because we here at Trapello, we want to lead the conversation. We're one of very few who are talking about this very topic of collaboration of these three uh, parties. But then you started talking about the work that Plugs does and the work that you guys have been doing there. And I just thought it was phenomenal and wanted to to share more of that and have this conversation. But, you know, off the top, could you share what is Plugs and what kind of work does the organization do in healthcare? Sure. Uh, well, like you said, Plugs is the patient-centered lab utilization guidance service, and it's um, a member-based organization founded and quarterbacked um, by Seattle Children's Hospital. And generally what it does, it's a non, it's part of Seattle, it's a program of Seattle Children's Hospital that um, supports what people refer to as uh, laboratory stewardship. Now, laboratory stewardship used to be called, uh, people used to refer to it as utilization management of tower, test utilization management. But, you know, when people hear the term test utilization management, especially uh, laboratories, what they, what they, when they, when they hear that, what they're thinking is, I'm not going to get paid. Mm-hmm. And um, when patients hear it, they think, this is not going to be a covered benefit. I'm going to be um, out of pocket. And when care providers hear it, they're like, someone is going to tell me, Dr. Big, what I have to order. And so we've, um, you know, ter- Change the try to change the conversation by changing by pushing this idea of stewardship, which is management of a of a of a resource, and we've piggybacked that on the um, uh, like we borrowed it from uh, antimicrobial stewardship, which is the idea of using antibiotics, you know, better for the uh, for the good of a population. And so, what Plugs does is it supports um, four things. One is ordering the right test. Two is retrieving that test because uh, one of the largest uh, sources of patient harm and litigation in the lab industry is failure to retrieve a test. So that's two. Three, interpreting the test correctly, and th- and four, a uh, fair payment. And it's um, and when we say fair payment, we mean that it's fair to all parties. It's fair to the patient first. It's fair to the um, laboratory and it's fairly the insurance company. And um, so those are the four, the sort of four um, aspects of, of laboratory stewardship that Plugs aims to, to uh, pursue and improve amongst the members. What do you think, what, what is your hope that the stewardship programs will ultimately do for institutions? 
Well, I think that there's for the the institutions right now. Besides the corporate sponsors, there's 92 members, most of which are hospital-based laboratories or um, commercial laboratories. Many times, these labs are part of you know larger health systems, like Intermountain is a member, and uh, Kaiser and uh, is a member, and these large health, a lot of large health systems um, are members. But you know what we're hoping to do is that they'll stand up. Uh, we help them stand up. Uh, these these members stewardship systems so that they so that their providers can better order retrieve interpret tests and um, align with insurance companies to get um, fair payment so to uh, to service the members we do four things one is to provide basic stewardship tools how to build a stewardship program, you know, how to form a stewardship uh, committee, how to choose uh, projects to improve stewardship. Anything could be simple, like how to decrease duplicate test orders, or it could be complicated, like how to completely control your precision medicine um, ordering, interpretation, and spend. So the first thing we do is we help the members stand up their stewardship systems by providing tips, tricks, policies, procedures, educational materials, um, meetings by WebEx where people can share um, best practices with each other. That's number one. Number two, we align with insurance companies. So we help insurance companies write policies. We help them pick out fraud and abuse. Um, and we generally just try to align with them because they have problems too. Uh, and the idea is if we help solve their problems, then they'll be more uh, uh, aligned to look at our members differently and perhaps give them the benefit of the doubt on medical necessity. So that's the second thing is insurance alignment. Um, the third thing we, we do is publish voluntary um, checklists of stewardship standards. Um, so stewardship uh there are standards around how to form committees, how to do interventions to improve test ordering, um, standards around the data, um, uh, how to handle the data when you're doing these interventions, and then there's standards around how to improve your stewardship system. So we have checklists for each of that. Each of that, and then the fourth uh, value proposition of plugs is to help um, particular clients who do not have. Uh, genetic counselors to help them with precision medicine, and we provide a case management, uh, a fee-for-service case management uh, service with a uh, trusted partner, which is uh, Metis Genetics. So those are the four things we do sort of in the industry for members, and it's uh, it's been very popular, and it's really caught on. Uh, I think insurance companies are particularly you know interested in this more collaborative approach. Yeah, it, it's a very robust offering for a a group to offer a member institution. What what problems did you see or experience that inspired you guys to create a solution in the marketplace for this? And I guess how did Plugs formally get started as an organization? Yeah, Plugs is really a grassroots thing. Plugs started it actually started in pediatrics um, with patient complaints about uncovered benefits for genetic testing. As you probably know, although reimbursement for genetic testing is improving in the United States, historically it's been poor, and to this date it still lags behind. Uh, it's hard for insurance companies to keep up to date um, with the explosion of genetic tests. They need to make policies for tests. It's very expensive and difficult um, to make policies, and so the 
payment is lagged behind. So plug started first, there were complaints in my own institution, letters from patients um, complaining about $5,000 bills that were uncovered benefits. Yeah. They were shocked. And at the same time, this was happening at institutions around the country. And there's, we had a meeting, uh, just a regular meeting of the Children's Hospital Association back in 2012. And in an open forum, this came out, the, all these patient complaints and all the problems with genetic test. It, start, it plug started in genetics, all these problems with genetic test ordering. And, um, and the problems that the care providers are ordering the wrong tests and the problems not getting paid, which are related. And so we, we basically cooked it up just around a dinner one night. About six institutions cooked up this idea that we should, instead of complaining about it, we should share tips, tricks, policies, procedures, ideas, get people together, start creating solutions, and start to cooperate with insurance companies instead of just calling them stupid or unethical. Um, but start to get on the same page and realize that most people just just want to do a good job. So that's how Plug started with six institutions, and then we figured out a membership uh, package. We did a collaboration with the business school here at the University of Washington and figured out how to uh, put together a business plan that we thought could work long term. And then it, it really just took off because um, this problem goes all over the country. So it started in genetics and then it spread to all areas of testing. Yeah, I think um, here's uh, some data that was published in the Journal of Applied Laboratory Medicine 2016. Um, it was sharing information that reflects exactly what you've been mentioning, that laboratory testing is really the single highest volume medical activity. Um, some were estimated over 13 billion tests performed each year. And you mentioned, you know, genetics, about 30% of genetic tests are ordered inappropriately. And about That's 5% right. of those genetic tests are, are frank medical errors. That's correct. Yeah. You know, what are some case studies? about how the stewardship program has been rolled out there at Seattle Children's or, or other places where you've been able to save time, money, and, and account for these errors? Yeah, well, there's a bunch of publications now on that very topic, including one from us. There's uh, Cleveland Clinic, ARUP, and, uh, Prevention Genetics, and, and others now that have um, uh, or other pl- bunch of places that have published on putting together stewardship systems for genetic testing and then improving the quality of the test order. And um, the work, the first I ever saw uh, a place really take an active uh, position on it was the University of Utah, um, ARUP Labs. It was uh, a small publication by Chris Miller, and then we ended up interviewing her um, for a piece in Clinical Laboratory News. But they they took the courageous approach of starting to review the genetic tests submitted to their reference lab, and they found this sort of 30% figure, which is um, held up uh, pretty well over time. And many many of the um, errors are they're not uh, going to cause patient harm, except that their pocketbook it's a duplicate test uh, or it's a slightly inferior test, uh, too big a bundle, too small a bundle. Etc. But then there's this five or six percent that are you're just ordering the wrong test, and it's very hard for physicians for anybody to keep up with the number of tests. You know, when I started in lab medicine, there were only two tests: you either tasted the urine or you looked at it under a microscope. <laughs> and now, 
you know, now there's thousands of these genetic tests and <laughs> it's very hard. It's hard for providers to keep up. It's hard for insurance companies to keep up their policy writing engines um, to account for them. And so these stewardship systems that have been stood up now, oh, I would say at least a third and maybe a half of PLUGS members have them now, usually use laboratory genetic counselors, the basis of them, to review um all genetic tests above a certain threshold. Sometimes it's a financial threshold, like $1,000, or sometimes it's um, a medical th a threshold. Uh, a basket of tests is chosen, chosen that is frequently misordered. For us, we review every genetic test except for Factor V Leiden, and that's that, that approach is also common. We have a lab ge genetic counselor systematically um, review the case and um, and in our hands, we're still correcting about 25% of the cases submitted. Uh, and this has happened all over. And usually what you find is this, you know, 25, 30% correction rate, this 5% medically significant error rate, and then um, tremendous cost savings because um, it about 10% of the tests don't need to be done at all because they're duplicates or the patient doesn't have a pedigree or, or a medically a reason to make the test medically necessary. So when you don't send those tests out, the, either the lab or the patient accrues the, the benefit financially. And so that they, these programs tend to pay for themselves. So when patients can pay, um, then they accrue. They they don't they don't have to pay for tests that are unnecessary. It wouldn't be a covered benefit when you order a duplicate, for example, a duplicate genetic test. And when patients can't pay, who pays? Well, the lab pays. We still have to pay our send out bill. If we send out a test um, to the university or to a commercial genetics lab, we have to pay that send out bill. And if the patient can't pay us then we have to somehow pay for it. And the way you do that is you, you cost shift on, you know, into the price of all your tests. So really everybody pays. And um, so in those cases, when we don't send out a test, that, that, that accrues right back to the lab budget. And that's how you can afford a lab genetic counselor. So the reason lab stewardship, the lab stewardship movement was built on the back of genetics is because it's one of the rare places where patient safety meets good, uh, you know, a positive financial gain. And then the rest of stewardship was built on that back. Um, that's why genetics really uh, ignited the lab stewardship movement. Mm. You've actually, you mentioned this earlier, helping insurers revise their policies for covering yeah. genetic and genomic tests. You know, what, how are they seeing this problem as the era of precision medicine just kind of comes like a tsunami, all these tests on the market? Um, how are they responding? Well, you know, genetic uh, insurance companies aren't all the same. I mean, there's different ways to divvy them up. I think for the purposes of stewardship, one one easy easier way to think about them is small plans versus large plans. So if you take, you know, in the United States, um, a disproportionate amount of health insurance is administered by United Healthcare, Aetna, uh, Cigna, Humana. And um, Anthem, and they have also a disproportional share of the underwriting profits, and they they cover uh, the the rest of the industry. The other two hundred plans 
don't cover as many human beings as those five big insurance companies. So yeah. the, the, the problem that the small plans have is different than the big plans. So, um, and I'll, I'll just start with the big plans because they're easier because you basically asked me about trends. So the trends over time with the big plans is that they're covering slowly more and more uh, in genetic testing. Big plans usually have the resources to do evidence reviews or pay for evidence reviews. They often are excellent policy writing houses. So you can go, for example, and many of them make them, all, all members of an insurance plan have access to the medical policies um, that are governing their health care, the payment for their health care. Um, but many of these companies make those policies publicly available. So for example, you could go online right now and look at Aetna's medical policy, all the medical policy bulletins for genetic testing. So big plans, advantage, they got resources, they review evidence, uh, and over time, as the evidence accumulates, they will start giving favorable coverage decisions when they're there's an evidence base. The disadvantage of big plans is that they move very slowly because they're large. Like any big company, they move slowly. So just to give you an example, you know, uh, recently uh, Aetna made a positive coverage decision with reasonable inclusion criteria for uh, covering exomes. And, you know, they we were pre pressuring them and talking to them that they're really slow. You know, they got to move it. They're way behind. They had exomes as in investigational and experimental, experimental long after exomes were useful for a fair number of patients. So that's an example on the big plant side. The small plants, they... They don't have the resources to write the number of policies that are needed. So when you when you don't have a medical policy and you're a small plan, usually one of two things happen. Usually you don't cover for genetic testing. You just call it investigational and experimental. Or you go to the other extreme and you cover everything until you start to see as you look at your spend that you're going broke. And so what small plans have had to do, and remember in the United States, small plans on the whole are much less profitable. They're the ones that are struggling the most. They're getting bought up. Um, they struggle to make an underwriting profit from the conventional health insurance industry. And so they've had to purchase um, their, their biggest disadvantages. They can't keep up their medical and administrative policies. And so they've uh, purchased, they, they have to purchase these policies a lot of times from third-party um, providers. And a nice third-party industry has um, awoken and, and formed uh, to, to provide the policies and procedures to administer genetic tests. So these are, you know, companies like, uh, we're the one we, we're most involved with is Evacor, but there's, uh, there's Avalon and uh, Hayes, and I'm at a, a DNA Direct, and uh, not DNA Direct, uh, Informed DNA and, and some others, but the space has got people in it now, uh, and the, the small plans have to, um, you know, piece together something so that they can keep up. So that's those are the big trends of what's happening, and um, you know, most most insurers want to do a good job, and um, essentially, uh, if they can keep up, they want to pay for medically necessary testing without being sort of ripped off by fraud, fraud and abuse and, and waste. Yeah. Are you seeing that there is a level of understanding with payers? Because you, you've, you've spoken about, you know, germline testing, preventative, versus those that are somatic mutations that may be acquired for, 
you know, other autoimmune diseases like cancer. Um, right. Is there a distinguishing line between them? Because many of their policies address NGS testing as a whole. Is yeah. There a, is there a need for different policies? Yeah. Oh, there's, I mean, the best, the best insurers have very nuanced policy books for different, you know, that go into cancer genomic profiling, you know, by tumor type and age. And um, so, I mean, it can get very, very nuanced on the cancer, on both the germline side and the cancer genomic profiling side. So, and that's why sm and small plans can't produce that kind of nuance, so they have to purchase it from a, a organization uh, that can. Um, the the one thing I would say that I think is really important, like if you're a provider of genetic tests, like we are or our university partners, or if you're a commercial uh, lab, either providing cancer genomic profiling or um, germline testing or both, you know, a lot of times you perceive the insurance companies as, um, you know, as blocking or not wanting to pay, um, as uh, not being fair, you know. And there's there's definitely cases of that. There's, there's no doubt. Um, but you have to ask yourself why. And the usual answer is, oh, they're a bunch of greedy, horrible people, you know, who are unethical and don't care about patients. That's like the usual kind of <laughs> response. And the plugs approach is much, much different than to call people those kinds of names. The 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 one of the big reasons that insurers are a little loath to quickly cover, um, especially when there's just, say, one paper out there or something is just based on a principle or the only data that's out there is internal data submitted by the commercial for-profit laboratory company. One of the reasons they're a little loath to cover is that we're we're afraid to admit in our field in the in the clinical laboratory field that there's a lot of overtesting, a lot of quackery, a lot of waste, a lot of fraud, uh, fraud waste and abuse. And these insurers have tuned their systems, their their claims adjudication systems, to block fraud, waste and abuse. Now, when you tune your system to block fraud, waste and abuse, what happens is that you end up blocking a lot of useful testing too, but they're not doing it in response to being unethical. They, they, their systems make sense relative to the claims that they're seeing. Now, how do I know what I'm talking about? Well, for the last dozen years, we've been working with large insurers and reviewing gigantic claims databases, and we've gotten, to, we've gotten to see as a university the fraud, waste, and abuse that's out there in many domains of lab testing, including genetics, both cancer genomic profiling and, ger and germline, where the bundles are, where the tests are too big um, and way beyond the evidence, and the price is too big relative to what the patient um, need. So our philosophy is to work with insurers and say, hey, look, if we weed out, help you weed out fraud, waste, and abuse, and they're willing to put together some reasonable evidence-based um, policies with you, review your policies or write some for you, will you be willing to give a, a, more, fa a more favorable inclination um, when certain tests are on the border but look like they're coming towards uh, or almost at a level of evidence that supports uh, the test being a covered benefit. So that's how PLUGS works, is to align, is to not accuse. You know, I'll make one other point to, 
to, for, for those, I just did kind of a long thing there. But if, if I had to summarize what I would just say, standing on one foot and saying it in 10 seconds, I would say most people do not like to be called unethical or stupid. <laughs> and so I think that if you, if, if, an, if insurers want to work with labs, it'd be nice to not be called that. And for labs to work with insurers, it would be good for us to, to take a different attitude, which is that we're all coming to work to do a good job. There's always a few bad apples out there. But if we work together, we all want to cover the care the medically necessary care for sick people. The vast majority of us do not want to be painted with a brush of fraud, waste, and abuse. And so let's let's uh, let's all view each other as like what we like to say in plugs. Let's view each other as bozos on the same bus. We're all just trying to get by and doing the best we can. Let's work together rather than this ridiculous last 20 years of throwing bricks at each other and calling each other names. That's sort of the plugs, uh, underlying plugs, foundational philosophy. I like the visual. <laughs> <laughs> you like poses on the same bus? You know, people, I, I got that from a psychiatrist here, actually. Uh, this, uh, just this idea of looking, not viewing yourselves as, as uh, better than another person or smarter than another person. It's been very helpful. Um, so that's how, we, that. that's how we try, that's how we try to do it. Uh, I like to tell people who are in, who are like the call insurance company executives, stupid or unethical. I said, if you want to be in a negotiation with an insurance company, and the, and you know if you if you fertilize the ground with I'm more ethical than you and I'm smarter than you, then you'll grow the green grass of hate, yes. and and then you're yes. never going to get a medical policy. You gotta. Who works in the insurance industry? It's just physicians. It's no physicians, no different than me. Sometimes they go come out of practice and into the insurance company, then back in the practice. Sometimes they're moonlighting for an insurance company. Um, it's just the same. It's the same pool of people, and so to call each other names is just ridiculous. I think. Yeah, understood. Well, I'll get you out of here on this. I mean, you you, you were talking about all the great work you guys have, have been doing, but when it comes to big plans, small plans, in in, in your worldview, what percentage of insurance companies? And I know this is very broad. How many of them have this on their radar to address? policy directly focusing on um, genetic and genomic testing. Yeah. Well, I would say, you know, five, six years ago, maybe maybe a third had, a, had it even on their radar. Um, and now I would say nearly all of them do, no matter how small the plan. And yeah. the reason is, and then the reason for that turns out to be genetics as well. Because you see, Years ago, just not that many years ago, but say five, ten years ago, you know, lab is a small part of the spend. People, uh, the insurance companies spend. People debate how much it is, but let's let's just let's just say it's three or four percent of the total spend of an insurance company is on uh, pathology and laboratory medicine services. So it's such a small amount that it wasn't worth managing because they would see that each year it goes up a certain amount and that was tolerable. So they would just add it to the fee. In other words, if it went up a few cents per member, if the cost went up a few cents per member per month, um, each year, they would just add that to the, to the, uh, how much the employer or patient or both had to pay. Very simple. 
So they, they didn't have a lot of motivation to ma- manage it. It wasn't going up beyond healthcare inflation. But then genetics came along, and genetics has had two scary things for insurance companies when they looked at data. The first was the cost per unit of service. You know, in the United States, a typical requisition has about three tests and bills out at about 45 bucks. And now that's three tests for 45 bucks, right? So insurance companies are used to dealing with all this high volume stuff where the test costs 11 bucks, 15 bucks, 14 bucks, maybe a crazy test is 70 bucks. Here comes genetics, 2000 bucks per unit of service. These gigantic cancer genomic panels, 3000 bucks. Well, they, that's, now they're thinking, oh, we got to apply something. And then they see, that the growth isn't the usual five or 6%, it's 22% year over year, the last five, six years in the databases we've seen. So now they have a problem because one thing insurance, insurance companies are relatively conservative type of businesses. And they, you know, what, what do you do with those unknowns that you worry that it, they worry that it's going to blow up? Where could it go? Lap could it become 10%. So that's really what triggered them to look at it. And that's why all of them look at it now. I haven't you know, at least in our plugs world, we haven't really run, and we work with a lot of small plans and large plans around the country. And our members, our members cover all the plans, right? And they, we don't know of a plan that's, that's not controlling genetic testing or looking at it. Um, so I would say now it's near, near universally looked at for those reasons. And, um, you know, and so hopefully the, uh, you know, looking at it, but working in a collaborative way will lead to more beneficial uh, coverage decisions, provided labs are willing to play fair and not overcharge and not overbundle and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think it's not lost on any of the listeners of this podcast that you can't really facilitate precision medicine without testing. And <laughs> right. Greater access right. to the testing and coverage will continue to spawn innovation uh, to those clinical laboratories out there and, of course, confidence in the providers. In- yeah, that's true. You need to, te- I mean, the tests, the tests, you know, I'll tell you everything I know about laboratory testing, and I've been at it a long time. Um, in, in laboratory testing, laboratory testing is phenomenal for sick people. Um, if you are not well, the chances that laboratory that we have laboratory tests that can help you, both nucleic acid-based tests, which is the interests of your company, or other other kinds of tests, the chances that it'll help you is tremendous. You know, you can't have a diagnosis of HIV without an HIV test. You can't have a coagulopathy without coagulation tests. But that said, if you're well. We, there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of wasted testing on well people. You know, the evidence base is weaker, even though people are excited about it. And also, even if you're sick, usually a few well-chosen cho- chosen precision medicine tests are quite a bit better than tons and tons of useless data that you have to try to, you know, uh, muck your way through to find some signal amongst that noise. So in general, in lab testing, less is more. A few well-chosen tests uh, with a good evidence base that will get paid for, and it'll help you more than just a sea of unusual speculative testing where physicians uh, don't know what to do uh, with the results. So that's those are just some good rules that I think can guide us. Um, and I think there's a good theoretical basis for that, but in practice, that's been our experience as well. Sure. 
And if you are a payer, if you are a healthcare plan, a medical institution or laboratory, and you want to get in touch with Dr. Dr. Mike, let me say that again. <laughs> Dr. So, Mike asked you. Right. So if you are a payer, provider, healthcare system, or um, someone who wants to get in touch and involved in plugs, reach out. You can find their information listed on our podcast episode, or you can reach out to Dr. Michael Ashton at the Seattle Children's Hospital. We want to That's thank right. you, Mike, for joining us on the podcast today. Hey, thanks, Jim. I had a nice time, and uh, good luck to you, and thanks for having me. Thank you. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast. Don't forget, you can download transcripts of today's episode at precisionmedicinepodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter, PMP by Trapello. If you enjoyed this episode, you probably know someone else who would too. So please tell them. They'll thank you. And so will we. You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit gettrapello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello or on LinkedIn at the Intervention Insights company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine Podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode. Mm-hmm.